you should try organic. What about becoming vegan? Don't eat any carbs. How about low carb? Paleo, keto, don't eat anything white. Don't forget about the dirty dozen. You eat too little. You eat too much. Don't forget to fast before you work out. I do intermittent fasting. Don't eat after six o'clock. Oh my God, sugar? Every day, I'm inundated with opinions. And you know what they say about opinions. Please, don't be foodish. Join me, Amy Goldsmith, owner of Kinder Nutrition and Wellness and Dietitian for 20 years, as I talk evidence-based nutrition to get the disorder out of eating. I can't wait to serve you. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Don't Be Foodish. This is Amy Goldsmith, your host and registered dietitian and owner of Kindred Nutrition and Wellness. Today, I will be going over part three of our parent series, where we will be talking about how to advocate for your child and why, signs of remission and recovery, as well as signs of relapse. Sit back and enjoy. Welcome back. We talked about Maudsley method and what the signs and symptoms are of an eating disorder and how the parent is very much a part of the team. And today we're going to present the last part of this parent seminar where we talk about lots of things. So we'll be talking about why you will be involved in challenges and exposures and how that will occur or why it should occur, why it's important to advocate for your child and who you would advocate for your child um, with or towards. And then last, we will talk about indicators of nutritional recovery and signs of relapse or that the disease is still fairly acute. So by now, hopefully lots of you have tried the Bosley method and had success with it. Uh, although it is very frustrating, we do find that within our practice that most people see significant changes in cognition with their child within about two weeks. And I would say the feedback that we get in most of our parent support groups is that although it is extremely taxing on the parental unit to make the food, plan the food, and present the, feel, the food the more that we're able to separate the eating disorder from the identity and not respond with an emotional conversation, uh, the better it is. So congratulations to everybody who has gone through this first stage of Maudsley method. And I would encourage all of you to continue to work with your dietitians and therapists and potentially explore family therapy if it is a very difficult process that's not getting a little bit more manageable as you move on. I wanna talk a little bit about challenges and exposures. I feel that this is very important to do during eating disorder treatment, and it's something that everybody should expect. It's also important to understand that during this challenge and exposure time, it's extremely important to have a full appropriate treatment team, which would include a dietitian, a therapist, a overseeing physician, and potentially a psychiatrist. So you may be listening and thinking, what in the world are challenges and exposures? 
from a dietitian perspective and at Kindred Nutrition and Wellness, we recognize that our dietitians are really able to assess and understand patterns when it comes with exercise, purging, laxative use, and food preferences. And as we become more familiar with those, and as we move through increasing intake where cognition is better, there now is more of an emphasis on nutrition education as well as challenges and exposures. Challenges and exposures are very unique because it is something that may be determined by a dietitian or a therapist, um, but it is absolutely imperative that there is a therapist on board to help guide and um, allow the child to process their moods and their behaviors and kind of lean into the discomforts that the food challenges and exposures may bring. So to give you an idea of what a food or challenge may look like, we as a dietitian may assess that the particular individual is very scared of um, carbohydrates or grains, for example. So what we may do is work through a food exposure worksheet where our clients or our patients are able to kind of write down what their safe foods are um, to their very unsafe foods. So usually about four categories um, and moving from the safest to the most unsafe. And based off of what those categories are, a dietitian may determine um, what they want to challenge first. Uh, as we've talked about, carbohydrates are a very important fuel source. So it's one of the things that's absolutely necessary for weight restoration and fueling the brain. So a dietitian may determine that someone is very nervous about carbohydrates and may say, let's try to eat a serving of rice in the next week. So what we'll do is we'll talk through that and we will get buy-in from the particular individual uh, where a decision will be made on maybe the specific day or the type of rice that particular person may eat. And we may have a minimal discussion um, to assess if they feel comfortable with a therapeutic tool or coping mechanism and ask them maybe to define what they may do once they expect and accept that they are gonna have some discomfort um, and um, kind of go from there. We will then from a dietitian perspective, communicate with the parent what the expectations are as well as talk to the therapist. So let the therapist know this is an exposure event that we really wanna work on. This is what we talked about in our session and how can you help us to help the particular individual get through this very um, nerve wracking event. And after the event is completed, uh, we may have specific types of worksheets or events or um, discussion points or journaling that we come up with the individual where an assessment of the challenge will be written down and then talked about and processed in both therapy and nutrition. The thought process behind challenges and exposures is that um, an initial scary event or trigger created a pattern or a habit um, that, 
make someone completely fearful that they are ever able to eat this particular um, item again. There is an irrational fear that they will immediately gain weight, that they may have an allergy, that they may choke. I mean, depending on the, the, the form of the eating disorder, uh, many, many scary things. And so what our goal is in challenges and exposures is to challenge the individual remind them that they do have tools to kind of work through that fear or that anxiety. And as they continue to move through challenges, uh, they gain confidence and can break that, um, that negative pattern of constantly avoiding something that is actually good for them. So that's also paired with nutrition education, um, as well as many other therapeutic tools. From my perspective, Parents are involved in this only in the form of understanding what the challenge is, assisting with making and preparing the food, asking the particular individual if they feel comfortable with what therapeutic tool or coping mechanism they are gonna use. Um, and again, just really uh, reinforcing uh, the, the separation of the eating disorder from the individual and providing love and support and understanding that this is a, a scary situation. At this time, usually in our parent support group, we have conversations about other types of challenges and exposures and lots of parents will bring up things that they recognize that someone is very scared about. So I would recommend that if you are someone within kinder nutrition and wellness, or you're looking for some other direction uh, with some of your other providers, maybe to pause this right here and document some things that you recognize that may be challenging for the individual. Um, and based off of what you write down, you can determine with your, um, with your team um, if it's necessary to discuss and how to integrate it into therapy. The next thing that I'd really like to talk about is advocating for your child. And again, this is an entire class that we usually go through because there's lots of discussion points and questions. So it's going to seem like we're blowing through this in the podcast. Um, so feel free at any time to stop and take some notes. But many families that I work with come in and feel that the environment that they're in does not understand an eating disorder. Uh, that they feel that the school doesn't understand, the coaches don't understand, families don't understand. And I want to just normalize that that potentially is true because like we've talked about, eating disorders are very complex and there's very few people who are trained appropriately. I always feel like it's very important to advocate for your child and have discussions with significant members of society who will work with your child. And the reason for that is, is really to provide validation to your child that this is a very important um, thing that we have to work through um, and also for assistance with treatment. I've said over and over, it's impossible for one person to kind of cure this disease. It's really a, a family disease and really there's a need for an entire treatment team. So let's first talk about the school system. Many of 
the parents that I work with are sometimes nervous about allowing or alerting the school of what's going on. And I am, was very lucky to have a couple teachers in my support group at the start of the pandemic who brought up really, really good points to think about. And the first point that this particular teacher brought up was that teachers are with your child longer than you are in a day. And they do become familiar with someone's demeanor and emotions, moods, and their presentation. So it is troubling when a teacher recognizes that someone is presenting in a different way. It's important to let the school know, and you can choose kind of who you'd like to know in the school, because while someone is suffering from an eating disorder, at times they are also suffering from depression, anxiety, and that perfectionism. So anxiety with school becomes uh, more extreme. And if your particular child is not performing in the same way and getting some pressure from their teachers, they may not know how to handle those emotions or articulate for themselves, which may create more chaos and anxiety, which will kind of fuel that eating disorder. My suggestion usually is to just reach out to the school counselor and let them know what's going on and um, maybe ask them to share information with you if they're getting any feedback from parents and really kind of thinking about this as um, a fairness situation as well. It's, it's unfair really for teachers or counselors to, um, be able to identify that something is going on with a child and not really understand what it is. Most teachers um, are there to help your child. And so um, there are some confidentiality um, items that come into play with this. Um, just making sure that you reiterate and are assertive that you want this to be confidential is important, but I do recommend contacting the school and letting them know what's going on. The last reason for that is, is because most likely there are gonna be an increase in absences due to therapy and nutrition appointments. I'm sure all providers just like me would love to never take their kids out of schools. However, as eating disorders continue to increase, it's nearly impossible for providers to have all evening or after school opportunities. I have had clients in the past who have had negative feedback from the school system regarding missing um, appointments. And you know, some of them were not assertive enough to provide um, an explanation or some forgot to give medical notes, which all of your providers should provide. Um, but this did kind of spiral into a very significant um, anxiety producing um, sequence. So, um, alerting the school and letting them know what's going on is important. Sports teams. I would say as a dietitian, this is one of the most frustrating things um, that I deal with with working with my eating disorder patients. Uh, many times parents do not want to pull kids from sports because they feel that it is uh, a positive event and it's a non-isolating experience. 
Um, and also, you know, maybe there is a form of competition that's involved in that decision, you know, a fear of kind of losing someone's spot. First and foremost, regardless of what a non-eating disorder specialty provider says, anybody with sinus bradycardia should be taking a break from their sport until they are appropriately and consistently fueling and hydrating themselves. It's also important that if you are getting an EKG that you alert the cardiologist and let them know that you are getting an EKG due to an eating disorder because sometimes the feedback that you may get from a cardiologist is that although you do have sinus bradycardia, exercise is okay. We know that to repair sinus bradycardia when you have an eating disorder, the goal is really to focus on appropriate fuel and hydration with a repeat EKG once you're at goal. There has not been a time where I have told a patient that they have to discontinue sports where they have not been disappointed. So I just wanna normalize that. The initial feedback and reaction is usually disappointment and then sometimes anxiety and fear. However, the majority of my patients, once they discontinue the sport, are able to weight restore much quicker and recognize how awful they felt once they're fueling themselves appropriately. It is a liability to allow for your child who has an eating disorder to continue to play a sport when they're not eating or hydrating themselves and not tell the coach or the organization because that particular person may be at risk of head injury, syncope, and many other things. So please follow the recommendations of the expert providers when it comes to sports and make sure that you communicate with the coach. The next place to advocate would be your physician office. We love physicians. They're very helpful and they help to manage acute um, health concerns at times, as well as look at patterns with annual visits. However, there are many physicians who recognize that they are not experts in eating disorders. Due to that, sometimes language can be triggering to patients and it is nobody's fault. However, if you recognize that your particular primary care physician group is triggering to your patient or tells, tells your child the, their weight or talks about things that are unsettling, it is appropriate to communicate with your physician office before your child goes there with what the expectations are gonna be. You can also ask for your team to do this with you. For example, at Kinder Nutrition and Wellness, we know which physicians are um, trained in eating disorders, and we also know which ones are very busy and sometimes aren't able to follow protocol and policies. So at Kinder Nutrition and Wellness, we make specific cards that someone can hand over to their physician regarding blind weights, um, or we will contact that physician office, the manager of the physician office prior to our patient going there to ensure that we will try to avoid any triggering events during that visit. 
while it's important to advocate for your physician office, it's also very important to advocate for your child or yourself when you're in the therapist and the dietitian office as well. I always say that my patients have a like-hate relationship with the dietitian. When someone comes in to talk about their most vulnerable secrets when it comes to food or exercise or purging or binging, it's not an experience that someone loves. However, it is important for there to be a rapport where that particular, my particular patient or client can come to me at any time and advocate for something that they feel that they need. It's impossible for a provider to read someone's mind. So just knowing and assuring that they can bring up whatever they'd like to discuss is really important. So this is something that you wanna look for when you're looking for that, that dietitian. From a therapy perspective, it is the same. Many times patients will come into a, thera a therapeutic office and be overwhelmed or uh, be working through a mood that is challenging or an emotion that is very challenging or a situation that is very challenging. And that can take up the majority of that visit. However, it's important to make sure that you feel open and are assertive and are willing to talk about specifics that are related to your eating disorder. And last but not least, really talking about being assertive with your family. And that can be your nuclear family, it can be your friends that you associate with this family, and it can be your big grand family that deals with your aunts and your uncles and grandparents and really just kind of deciding who is going to be a part of your tribe when it comes to uh, the treatment team and building your child up and who you may need to discuss expectations with and establish boundaries with. So making sure that you're assertive with all of these particular units and um, talking, establishing boundaries, um, it's very important to advocate for your child. Last but not least, we are going to touch on nutritional indicators of recovery from an eating disorder. So many times I meet with families and, you know, the question is, when will, be, when will this be over? When will we be done with this? You know, the short answer is that everybody is individual, but we find research finds that on average, treatment for an eating disorder is about seven years. Um, please don't get nervous when you hear that because treatment changes and evolves over time. And an average is the average of the very least amount of treatment and the very, um, the, the longest duration of treatment. But oftentimes parents feel that, or, or you know, individuals may feel like once they hit that weight that they are recovered from an eating disorder. Unfortunately, weight alone does not indicate remission or recovery. So some of the things that we're gonna talk about are going to explain something that may indicate that somebody is in remission or moving to recovery from the nutrition standpoint. So the first, per, the first point would be the metabolic rate. So 
this is when a dietitian will assess that it's increased to a person's genetically determined level. It could be determined by a resting metabolic rate. Some believe in this, some not. Um, but you will also see things such as better sleep patterns, not feeling cold all the time, a more normalized period, and things like that. A positive change in food consumption patterns. So noticing that there's an establishment of consistent patterns of eating that include meals and snacks, and that there's a discontinuation of eating disorder symptom use with that. So for example, not feeling like you have to eat at the same exact time every day, um, allowing time to eat meals and snacks when you're busy, um, and eating all foods without fear. When caloric intake is normalized, so when a dietitian feels that someone has the ability to ingest the amount of food that's necessary to achieve and then maintain appropriate weight and allowing someone to eat from all food groups unless there is a verified allergy. From a weight perspective, we're looking at a maintenance of a body weight within a specific range and restoration of menses without hormone therapy and an elimination of compulsive weighing behaviors and rituals. We may also feel like there's a, uh, a indication of remission or recovery when we look at appropriate physical activity without feeling impulsive. So learning methods to move your body in a joyful movement way without the purpose of calorie expenditure and having a sense of physical well-being stress reduction and endorphin production. We will also see restored GI function. So oftentimes when there's significant restriction or there's binging, laxative use, we can see uh, side effects of constipation, diarrhea, and bloating. So we wanna make sure that someone has a discontinued use of laxative and diuretics and that they're able to eat without getting prematurely full and that they have an absence of diarrhea and constipation. We also want to see that food and body image preoccupation decreases. The expectation is that the decreased amount of time spent thinking about food and body weight is, goes to less than 20% of a consciousness per day. We'd like to see an elimination of calorie counting, reading nutrition labels, excessive food shopping, food hoarding, and recipe collecting, and an ability to eat food that's not measured or weighed. We'll start to see a variety of foods. So someone will start to expand their food selections to meet their protein, fat, carbohydrate, vitamin, mineral, water, and other nutrient requirements. And this particular individual will have an ability to eat a variety of foods without fear, anxiety, or guilt, or the use of compensatory behaviors. We like to see that someone is able to incorporate their old fear foods on a regular basis. Social eating, noticing that someone is feeling comfortable eating with their families and friends in restaurants or as a guest in someone's home, and then mindful eating. So having an ability to recognize hunger and respond by eating promptly and adequately. Discontinued use of appetite suppressants, which even includes coffee and water. 
an ability to understand and respond to normal levels of fullness and tolerate the feeling of food in your stomach, eating with minimal distractions. So these are just some nutritional indicators of recovery from an eating disorder. And what we find is that are that uh, people usually enter remission. And once we have these consistent behaviors for about three months, we're entering into recovery and moving from there. So very, very important. Let's talk a little bit about signs of relapse. So if you have moved through this process and your child or even you or someone you love has been in remission or recovery from an eating disorder, there are going to be times when someone is triggered and at risk of a relapse. It's important to understand what some signs and symptoms may be of a relapse and to also accept that if you do notice or recognize any of these signs or symptoms, the sooner you get this particular individual in with an eating disorder specialist, the better so that you can break any habits or pattern that may move towards a sustained eating disorder. Some of the things that we've outlined within our support group are that the first thing that people notice, especially parents, are a change in eating patterns. So all of a sudden, maybe they'll start to skip breakfast or they will bring food home in their lunchbox from lunch, or they will start to eat differently, feeling that they may be um, interested in being vegetarian or that they wanna focus on eating clean or any of those orthorexic type of thought processes. Another thing would be noticing that somebody is starting to wear baggy sweats or sweatshirts or changing the way um, that they wear their clothes. An increase in self-criticism is something to definitely pay attention to because an increase in self-criticism could potentially um, be telling that that perfectionism is increasing. And if we don't feel comfortable with a coping mechanism with that uncomfortable feeling, we may be at risk of using old habits. A change in moods. So noticing that out of nowhere, someone's mood is changing is very important to pay attention to, as well as timing of meals. So oftentimes we may start to see that someone eats snacks within a certain amount of time after a meal, or that meals need to be a certain amount of hours apart. Um, just paying attention to that. Energy level, so noticing that somebody may be more fatigued or may be low, have low motivation. Taking more naps is often a sign of maybe an increase in depression or an avoidance strategy. And then paying attention to sleep. So if you notice that your particular child or yourself is having a very big difficulty getting to sleep or staying to sleep, that's something to look into. All of these signs and symptoms don't necessarily mean that someone is relapsing, but they are definitely something to, to notice, talk about, and work with a provider if necessary. So that's what we want to talk about today. And that concludes our parent seminar. I know that this gives uh, basic information and introduction, but I hope that what everybody draws from this is that the parent is a very important piece of the treatment 
team and that you also understand the basic signs and symptoms of an eating disorder, how to fuel your child, how to advocate, and what to look out for in the future. Thanks so much for being here, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. That concludes our parent series. And I hope that this has given you some initial information to put your treatment team together and recognize how important and vital you are to the treatment of your child. Stay tuned in the next couple of months where we will be talking to some very exciting guests, one about trauma-informed yoga and the Teenage Whisperer. We hope to have you there.